Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gerardo Polly. And this, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm Gerardo Polly. I'm Hubert Himstra, and this is the Vet Vault. Before we introduce today's guest, just a reminder that if you want to see a recap of some of the best bits of each episode, or if you want to refer to any of the books or resources that we talk about to our guests, you can check them out at thevetvault.com and clicking on the show notes. And if you know anyone who you think might find value in what we discussed, then send them a link to the episode and help us spread the love. Now, if you're anything like me, you might have some preconceptions about surgery and surgeons. Our guest this episode, Dr. Bronwyn Fulliger, will flip those ideas of yours on their heads. Bronwyn is a board-certified specialist surgeon who has a different take on what it means and what it takes to be a surgeon. When there is not a global viral pandemic, she travels the world as a locum surgeon, and in between work stints, she shares her skills at several charity organizations in some pretty awesome locations. We dig deep into a career in surgery, what it takes, what it looks like, the good and the bad, including some practical advice on how to become a surgeon. She gives us her tips on how to stop post-op panic about things going wrong with your cases, and she shares with us about finding her passion, loving the journey, picking your mentors, how working in the US compares to a career in Australia, and much, much more. Please enjoy Dr. Bronwyn Fulligar. Bronwyn, welcome to the Vetfeld. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I am going to start straight away just to, just to get cut, to know to cut them. me off. Do what? To cut me off first. You're going to, you're going to jump in straight away. Yes, to stop Gerard, stop Gerard from saying anything because once he starts, you can't shut him up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll start with our new question just to get to know you a little bit. Uh, about, I, I said to Gerardo, I saw a billboard the other day that all it said is bad decisions lead to good stories. I love that. I was, uh, it kept me thinking for ages. So I want to know, do you agree with that? And if you agree, have you got any examples? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great quote. And uh, I think as a veterinarian and particularly as a surgeon, we have um, ample opportunity to make uh, bad decisions. And then um, if we're lucky later on, they become a good story that we can laugh about uh, later on. So I definitely agree. Um, and yeah, I thought, I thought a lot about what example to use. I would say that most of my... Uh, funnier examples happened as a new grad, which I think is maybe true for most people. And um, my first job was in a mixed animal uh, practice in North Queensland. And um, people who know me now probably couldn't imagine me doing cattle or camel medicine, which is what I tended to do a lot of there. But um, yeah, my, I think my uh, worst worst set of decisions leading to what now hopefully is a is a good story was uh, my, my one of my first weekends on call at Easter time. So it was Easter and uh, to set the scene a little bit, I'd been in practice for about six weeks or so, very green. And uh, our clinic was on call for a radius of about three hour drive from its location. And I was the sole mixed animal practitioner on call for that radius for the four day Easter long weekend. And the series of cases that I received was pretty much every new graduate's nightmare. <laughs> there was, uh, I can still remember some of them. There was a, you know, a cat in status of epilepticus that I could not get to stop 
having seizures. There was a snake bite, a colic, some sort of foreign body surgery. And then um, on about, I think it was Saturday or Sunday evening, I'd been going pretty much flat out for 36 or 48 hours. Mm. And um, one of the clients called and said, oh, I've had, I've had another wiener die. You know, we've had these wieners die for you know, months and my boss had told him that the next time a wiener died, didn't matter what time it was, we were going to go out and do a postmortem on it. And, uh, you know, it didn't seem like a, an emergency to me since the wiener had already uh, passed away, but, you know, it seemed like the client and uh, really felt like it needed to be seen right then and there. So I thought I'd better go and do this. So, you know, I grabbed a, grabbed a snack and put on my coveralls and uh, it was, you know, hot and sticky in North Queensland. And I went out and spent oh, several hours doing uh, what I thought was a very thorough postmortem exam on this wiener, collecting all kinds of specimens in small bottles. And I even got the brain out. So proud of myself. And by the time I'd finished this, it was, uh, you know, and I'd been using my car headlights to kind of light my postmortem. And so I was covered in slime and goo and all kinds of cow entrails. And it was hot. You can imagine the smell was pretty bad. And, um, before I, before the, the property owner or the farmer left, I said, uh, I'll just hang on a sec. Before you go, I just want to check that my car will start because the headlights have been on for a really long time. So I put my hand through the open window of my car and turned the key in the ignition. Um, you know, ter- obviously terribly bad decision as you'll find out. <laughs> so uh, the car proceeded to, I, I'm not, entirely sure of the details, all a bit of a blurb, but essentially the car proceeded to drive away by itself. <laughs> and uh, I, I uh, started to chase the car. Also, terrible decision. Never try and stop a moving car with your body. But uh, chase the car and was attempting to, I think, jump through the window to grab the handbrake to try and save my <laughs> beloved Subaru from a certain demise. And uh, didn't see a tree because it was dark and the tree kind of came up alongside the car and I got squished between the car and the tree so you know the car proceeded to go and total itself fortunately didn't hit anybody but certainly landed up in a ditch and um i was in a pretty critical condition um that's less funny the story yeah so not uh not not terribly funny at the time but uh yeah i definitely you know ambulances were called and i landed up um in the local hospital and I, I think that you know in the end obviously everything turned out okay but I think the the more entertaining parts of the story with it when I having you know laying on the ground for 45 minutes waiting for the waiting for the ambulance to arrive and then being assessed and I was in the ambulance driving 45 minutes back to the main town uh, the on-call phone proceeded to ring <laughs> And uh, I was like, somebody has to answer that, you know, answer it. And, you know, here I am in an ambulance and uh, the paramedic answered the phone and more calls kept coming in. You know, it was a goat that was having trouble breathing. And, you know, I was like, you'll have to call my boss. (laughs) Keep keep fielding these calls. So I got to the hospital and um, was obviously covered. I was wearing overalls, which by this stage were covered in blood and all kinds of your, your own your own blood this no 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 the oh. cow's blood oh, okay. so i so i was being wheeled in on the gurney and and it was sort of like a scene from uh, er you know, everyone rushes down it's like she's covered in blood it's not my blood so i think i guess bad decision um bad outcome except for the fact that i made it and uh 
I think the moral of the story was to, you know, apart from the obvious of not trying to run after cars and never operate your car from outside the vehicle, that I think the other take home is if you've been up for 36 hours, um, you know, know yourself well enough and, and set some boundaries for yourself and, and sort of be able to say no, no you know, yes. and because um, no animal emergency is worth risking your own life over. And so I think, you know, many people have been in, yeah, similar situations maybe. How long ago was this, Bruno? Oh, it was my first year of practice. So. Yeah, but you look very young. 2000 I've got no idea. Oh, it was probably in uh, 2008. 2008. So we do. 12, 12 years ago and I love how much detail you like the fact that you can remember all the other cases you saw on the weekend oh it's like it, one it of those clearly was a very traumatizing year <laughs> into my memory that whole weekend yeah and I think you know my poor my poor boss and my parents um you know who had to go through all the angst of of dealing with that but um yeah fortunately in the end it was a good it's a good well, story but now right fine <laughs> Apart from 17 um, titanium implants and still fragments of tree in your thigh or something. <laughs> so that's how, that, that was the start of, you know, that's the start of your journey through mixed practice and then the end of your journey in mixed practice to <laughs> in one weekend. But what, what, where, 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 where did you transition from there? You, you stayed out for a bit longer and then where did yeah, you go from so there? Guess, because uh, in, what, what, in you, what is the first you part of the now? question, I Maybe you might be, uh, recovered. Uh, at home and then I at the hospital and at home and then I purchased another Subaru and I <laughs> drove it back to the practice and proceeded to work there for another couple of years um, and I became the story kind of became local folklore amongst the, the farmers ah you're that vet that <laughs> ran over herself with her car blah 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 um, but no since then uh, so what I do now is I'm a specialist small animal surgeon um, based in Canada and I work primarily as a locum surgeon so a relief surgeon and uh, I tend well pre-COVID I traveled um, a lot for work so I traveled between uh, the US Canada Australia and was going to do some work in New Zealand but things have changed a little with the, the pandemic and um, and then on the side or in in the times that I'm not in the clinic I do some um, public speaking and, and educational work in surgery and I do some um, I try to do each year some some charity or volunteer work with some of the um, worldwide, you know, vet charity organizations as well. Wow, that's the coolest work job setup I've heard of in a long time. That's really <laughs> awesome. So, so you're a, you're a, you're a specialist surgeon, Bruno. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm so a... so talk talk us through the journey from from cow vet to globe trotting specialist surgeon. That's that's incredible. Mm. Yeah, so I, um, after a couple of years in mixed practice, I finally, um, you know, listened to myself a little bit and realized that my my passion and what I really looked forward to in work was the small animal side of things rather than the, the farm animal and the horses as much. So I um, first embarked on sort of the rite of passage of every Australian veterinarian by going to the UK and um, actually working as a locum there in small practice for a couple of years. And did some traveling and, you know, really great experience, lots of, you know, fun adventures. Mm -hmm. And then sort of was at a crossroads where I thought, you know, I, I want to do more with, with my job and make sort of more of an impact. And um, I've always kind of had this idea that I'd like to work in North America and, um, and specialize. 
And I thought, I'll just, I'll just check it out and see, you know, what's, in, what's involved in that. So I did a lot of reconnaissance work, uh, trying to work out how one goes from uh, an Australian veterinarian from a non-accredited school through to the US system. And um, being a locum in the UK allowed me to take some time to travel to North America to do some externships and trips around various schools. So, I'm just going to interrupt. So how many years out of uni are we now in this part of the story? Uh, About roughly three to four. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. So not, not a long time, okay. but a little bit different to what, what sometimes people say that, you know, you need to do an internship straight away. So I kind of, um, yeah, sort of went back and, and did an internship. So applied through the match, um, and matched to a practice in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And it, I guess it, it does help that I'm a Canadian citizen. So that kind of was a foot in the door somewhat. And I knew that if I could get an internship in either Canada or the States and do the rotating internship, then I'd have a better chance of being a candidate for a, a residency of, of some kind in North America. Um, and also, you know, Canada and Calgary appealed to me because I love the mountains and it seemed like a cool sort of adventurous place to, to go. So, um, did an internship there and then um, went through the match again the next year um, and was really fortunate to match to a residency at Ohio State so in surgery. So then I travelled to Columbus, Ohio for three years and, um, yeah, did a surgical residency and then after that uh, made the move back to Calgary, um, you know, to start work as a specialist. So the that, that decision to make the jump to actually doing a, a residency and specializing. That's a, that's a big decision. Now I, I, I'm going to interrupt myself there because when you were telling the story of the Subaru, uh, I did actually think that when you, when you were saying the bit about lying in the ambulance and still being concerned about the phone ringing, you, you clearly are a, are a committed driven sort of a person. If you, most people, when you, <laughs> when you're bleeding, bleeding out in an ambulance, you, you stop worrying about sick goats and stuff like that, but not, not Bronwyn. Are, are, you very, are, you, are you very driven? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's fair to say that I'm, I'm very driven. And, um, I, for a long time I had, um, you know, pretty, pretty big long-term goals about where I wanted to, to land up. And like many others have, um, you know, reflected some of those goals have, have worked out the way that I had hoped and some of them have worked out in completely unexpected um, ways. But definitely once I had decided that I wanted to specialise in something, then I sort of set my mind to it and put, yeah, lots of, lots of time and effort into kind of taking all the steps that I could to try and make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the decision to specialise, I think, I think um, for me it was a couple of things. I, I wanted to be able to make... Um, to, to be an expert in in one particular field, to be the you know a person that could help others, um, you know, with cases or to get better, to be kind of a go to mm-hmm. uh, person and to understand better how things work. I think, um, and the more you learn about you know medicine or surgery, you kind of go down the rabbit hole into you know physiology and biomechanics, and then it becomes more and more and more interesting the more that you know. At least it did for me, and mm-hmm. so you know, I'd see these people who were specialists and they weren't just smart and good at whatever they were specialized in. They were just all round smart, interesting people who seem to be top of their game and things. And I think the, the other thing, like why people ask, you know, why surgery? And I think for me, um, surgery, maybe, maybe this is not its reputation, but I think the reality of surgery is that 
you have to kind of do a bit of everything. Like you have to, you have to know about every organ system. You have to liaise with all the different specialties in the hospital. Mm. Um, you have to understand cardiology and endocrinology and, um, you know, internal medicine and oncology and all those sorts of things in order to do surgery. And so I felt like it was a happy medium of not sort of giving up on all the rest of the body systems and at the same time still getting to do surgery, which itself is really fun. Like I couldn't imagine my career without doing a skill like, like Mm. surgery. Um, So I kind of fell into it that way. And I think in terms of, you know, making a, helping people around the world and volunteering in other countries, which is something that I wanted to do for a long time. I feel like a surgeon is in demand everywhere. It's like, you know, we talk about vet medicine being an essential service and within vet medicine, surgery is an essential service. You know, we all need to know how to do it to some extent or have somebody, you know, there to do it. Um, And so I felt like it was a versatile specialty if I was going to, you know, live in either Australia or North America, um, you know, there'd be options. So, so, was, so, so when it came to specialty for you and being the expert, was it was it sounded like like was it like progressive mastery? Like it's kind of like you had an interest in it and you dived into it, and then the more you dived into it, the more rewarding it was. So and like that that journey pursuit for mastery over something was was that the like the the, the drive behind it? You know, like some people kind of dance around and get become jack of all trades, right? but then they don't necessarily want to spend and invest the time in one particular area because, um, but then they, because they feel like they're going to miss out some kind of fear of missing out. Right. If I do this, then I won't ever get to do that ever again. But what it sounds like to me, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. um, But the, the joy that you got from diving deep into one particular area, was it around kind of mastery and skill and expertise? Uh, yeah, and mastery not only of the physical skill of doing surgery, but I guess maybe I'm speaking only for myself here, not for all surgeons, but I guess I like the thinking part of surgery as well. I like the practical, logical decision-making mm. side of it. Um, and, yeah, I, in, general, in general mixed practice, I definitely felt like I was okay at a lot of things, but for my particular personality and and um, interests and things I would rather be better at one area of that um, and I think a common uh, worry about you know people when they decide to specialize is oh but I'll never get to do x y and z again and I wouldn't say that I really miss the things that I don't get to do um, and I think if you asked say an ophthalmologist do they miss I don't, I don't know treating the hind legs they probably say no I mean the eyes are so fascinating but mm. you know no I don't I don't miss it the knees I, <laughs> so. yeah that's uh, I love your take on on surgery because you're right. There is a well, so I certainly have a preconception about surgery being a very narrow, chop chop chop. We don't care about anything else. Uh, I just want to be in. I just I, I don't be offended. It's it's just you know it's obviously an exaggerated way of saying it, but but you do think all right. All the other guys do everything else. I just stand in my little theater with my scalpel blade, and the animal comes in, and I slice it, and then say, okay, handball back to you not my problem anymore but the way you describe it does sound a hell of a lot more appealing but I've, I've never been drawn to surgery as such I can take it or leave it but when you describe it that way uh, it does sound much nicer yeah I think I, I had that same preconception about surgery as a vet student and I always enjoyed it but I always thought oh I don't want to be that person that's nobody asks you know um, difficult thinking questions they only want you to do the sort of 
tradesperson part of surgery. When I did my internship, I was exposed to some, um, you know, great surgeons. And I sort of vividly remember one day when a, um, there'd been a, a septic abdomen. So I think, I can't remember the exact details, but some sort of intestinal dehiscence and the surgeon had gone in and done a resection and anastomosis. And then she was there the next day kind of modulating the post-operative care of this septic patient. And there was, it's quite complicated, obviously there's you know, drains and fluid balances and, you know, various different um, prokinetic medications. And you're thinking about, you know, systemic inflammatory response and all this kind of stuff. And I was the intern standing there just in awe, like, this is what surgeons do. Like mm. amazing. Like I saw the surgery yesterday. That was great. And now, you know, you get to treat this patient, um, you know, you get to treat the whole patient and, I think, you know, I, I'm very much biased towards soft tissue surgery, I think, for that reason. But, um, you know, I love being in the OR, but I also like, yeah, the thinking, the sort of practical thinking side of surgery. Mm. But you said something before, and actually, now you just highlighted it again. That's what you saw, right? You saw that kind of vision or that, that, that type of surgeon that was not just, you know, a, what everyone thinks surgeons do, which is literally kind of stand next to the theater, scrub, get into a theater, and then stand just a little bit out of the theater, change scrub, and someone feeds them, a, you know, like a patient after patient, right? But what you saw was this, <laughs> was this you know, holistic surgeon, and you saw all, all aspects of it, right? So, I don't know. Like to me, it sounded like as if that image that you not necessarily held onto that, but that's kind of the standard that you were actually yeah. wanting to achieve for yourself. <laughs> I was going to ask the same question because I think it does come down to, to your teachers and your mentors. I think mentors, any, yeah. if there's any South African vets of, of my generation listening to this, I think we can all imagine one of the head surgeons at our uni and he was not like that. He was the surgeon who you ask him a post-op question and like, I don't care, go ask the medicine guys. No, mm. uh, he was a technician. He wasn't actually a, a doctor. I think there are surgeons out there who, who really enjoy like the thing that they love most about surgery is, um, is the technical aspect. And I think, you know, maybe I'm generalizing, but I think people who um, really, really love orthopedics, um, hmm. that's definitely a very, very technical, it's technical mastery. But I think the, the American system too, like the, one of the reasons that I wanted to specialize in the States at the time that I did was because in the American system, there is this focus on, and, and I can't comment on Australian specialization because, of course, I didn't do it. But at least my what I saw when I visited these U.S. universities and saw the surgery residents and what they were doing, I was like, I want to be a surgery resident. Like, this just looks like, you know, the greatest thing. And obviously, you know, it, it's really hard as well. But I like clients and, um, you know, I like that side of that too. So maybe I'm, I'm an unusual surgeon, but um, that's what I like about it. I think you are an, an, an unusual surgeon. But, but it's, good to, it's, good, it's good to know that you can be that kind of surgeon. Um, I think that's the, the, the point of it. The, the other thing which you said before, and, and she would say the word mentor, which was where I was going to head with that, was that you, you said that you, you, you worked under surgeons or you spent time with surgeons, right, who were balanced. I'm not saying that there are surgeons out there, like there are vets out there who are unbalanced. You, you know, it's just that... But it's kind of like you picked your mentors. Some people look for the mentor who is clinically the best at something, right? Some people, and that's what they do, or that's what they want to be like. But then, and then that's the common downfall, um, I feel, if, if people don't select properly when they're selecting mentors, is that if you get the clinical guru, right, but then it's not well balanced, mm -hmm. then 
you, you turn into that kind of person, right? And that could be fine if that's what you want to be. But then you should also, considering mentors and picking your mentors, look at the other aspects of their life. Look at the other aspects of how they treat the teams and so forth. This is with any kind of mentor, right? There, there should be more thought going into selecting mentor, not just, hey, this person is the best of the best of this, and I want to do that. But then you've got to decide whether or not you want to be almost the same as every other aspect in their life, you know, because over time you will, it will impart and it will rub. So, I, you know, it's just an observation that what you said before, but you talked about well-balanced mentors. You talked about the thing that, you know, wanted to see and, and, and the image that you had, and that was really cool for you. And, and it was just really cool to hear. Yeah, I think I was really fortunate in my residency to have a couple of, um, a couple of really, well, several really, really good mentors who kind of epitomized, um, you know, being excellent surgeons, like, you know, really, really top um, technical surgeons, but also promoted really excellent post-operative care and they were good teachers and they were kind. They were just nice. They were friendly and kind people. Um, and I think I had some preconceptions and maybe, you know, surgery is stressful. And so, you know, it's, it can be easy as a surgeon when you're having a stressful day to, to seem intimidating, I think. And I think, you know, some people are intimidating, but, um, but I think you don't have to be, um, yeah. So I, I guess I was fortunate to sort of work under some surgeons who managed to be, you know, excellent surgeons, but also be great people to work with as well. Um, so that's a that's yeah. a, a tricky one because you it is a to some degree a little bit of luck of the draw because if you mm-hmm. where you ended up doing your residency you had by default good teachers and mentors but I, then i agree completely with what gerardo says i'm trying to think how do you put that into practical terms that it, it might be a going into who you learn from with a very clear set mindset of what I want to learn from this person and then mm. picking multiple mentors. So you might end up in a surgical residency and you've got technically the best surgeon in the world, but you don't want to be that person is to go, well, let me learn surgery from him, but I'm going to pick somebody else in the hospital who I want to model in terms of how, how to be and how to grow and, you know, my mindset. So it's maybe, yeah. maybe being, I, I heard a, another, I think it was on another podcast and, and it came to the, it was with a guy who wrote The Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And his one lesson, they asked him if you could leave only one lesson. He said his one lesson to people is pick your teachers. Yeah, I think the idea of learning different things from different people is really important. And one of my resident mates actually pointed that out to me. You know, I was, I was struggling in my first year of residency. I think a lot of people do. It was a big culture shock to move to the States. And it was a very fast-paced and pretty demanding program. And, you know, I was getting quite stressed about things. And and, um, you know, there's lots of different personalities and some of them you work super well with and some of them, you know, for whatever reason, you're just not super well matched. But my resident mate said exactly that. He's like, you know, when you're with, you know, pick what you want to learn from each person and just focus on that, you know, focus on why you're here. And, and um, yeah, that, that advice definitely helped me quite a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. It's like so being deliberate around mm-hmm. yeah, what your choice and why. There's, there's those hard times. Where during certain stages of your of your residency, what what was the because it's a big thing, it's a big daunting thing. I I, I think all vets or most of us at some point go, should I specialize? And I think for many of us, the absolute enormity of it and the and the overwhelming amount of time and effort that it takes just seems too big a mountain 
to to cross was it as hard as you thought what were the hardest parts what were the biggest challenges that you faced during your journey to being super surgeon oh, i wish i was a, a super surgeon that'd be awesome um i think some of the hardest I, I thought a lot about um i've thought a lot about this and definitely the residency itself i think most people would, would say it, it's it's really hard you know it's physically hard it's mentally draining it it really stretches the limits of your um mental fortitude in terms of you're expected to often work on um, quite low amounts of sleep and there are a lot of demands placed on you and you hold a lot of responsibility um, in the hospital so you know if things don't go well you're the first person that needs to kind of be there to be responsible for that um, so yeah the residency was you know as challenging as I had expected um, for a lot of different reasons but I think the times that I found the toughest it's been less about the actual work and more about what's going on inside my own head, you know, trying to make the decisions. And you, you know, you said to me, how did I make these decisions? It, it really wasn't easy. And, um, you know, to do a residency, you're definitely committing three or four years or more of your, of your life, often in your twenties to, to doing it. So you have to one really have the end goal in mind and you have to, to actually want to be a resident, which fortunately I did. Like I really like, I liked the learning and we got sort of grilled a lot as residents. It was very structured and we were expected to know things and we would be questioned on them all the time. And it prepared us really well for boards, but it can also be quite stressful if you don't like having people quiz you all the time. But I have, I learned for the most part, I like that kind of learning style. Um, I like the structure and I liked that. So, but I think the decisions to the decision to do a residency, particularly one that's in a foreign country, is really hard. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever heard someone say that you have to decide, like you have to want to be a resident. Yeah, you've got to like it. That's gold. I really like that. That's that's super. That's super cool. That comes back to what we've, we've talked about before, about people saying it's not about the end goal, it's about struggling well. So the residency mm-hmm. is going to be a struggle, but if you just focused on, I just want to get through this and be a specialist, you're mm. going to be unhappy for that whole time instead of saying, this is great in itself. I think I definitely started out with, it's only three years. You can survive anything for three years. Just mm. get the letters for half to your name. And then, you know, by sort of the end of the first year, I was like, this isn't working. You know, <laughs> this I've got to embrace this residency thing a bit more. And then things definitely improved when I sort of, you know, enjoyed the journey a little bit more. And I think, I think it was Rob Webster, one of the other specialists that I listened to on the podcast said, you know, the, the fleeting joy of achieving letters after your name. I mean, it's brilliant for, he said two or three hours, I would say two or three weeks, like definitely <laughs> felt pretty good, but you, if you've got to be doing it for more than just that day. Yeah, that and, and I, I can take that back as, for myself as, as far as vet school mm-hmm. in, in terms of what I did wrong. Because uh, you just look forward to that graduation day, to that that day of your last exam. I just fantasized it for for years, uh, and it is disappointing. I I distinctly remember finishing that last oral, going, "I'm done, I'm done, I'm so happy," and then going, "Fuck, I've got a headache and I'm tired. I'm gonna have a nap." That mm-hmm. was literally the extent of it. I, I was picturing wild parties, and there were some wild parties, but first there was just a little bit of, "Oh, well, that was it. It's over." Uh, and and not actually focusing enough on on enjoying the journey and and making the most of of where you are at the time. Mm-hmm. I love the quote. You know, what is it? Um, it's not just a destination; it's a journey, right? And when I was going through vet school, I like 
um i was like oh so the journey i missed out on the journey which was partying and having fun and drinking and he like you know like so i i my my inter- interpretation of that jesus kind of 10 15 years ago right was that actually i should have had more fun but then now i reflect i'm like i should have just loved it you know like yeah. like i should just you know the opportunities that i had the people that i met the things that we did the stuff that i learned like that was honoring and, and enjoying the journey not necessarily what i thought it was which was drinking and, and partying and stuff yeah. right because i didn't do enough of that that's for sure i think so. i think there's i think there's both i certainly had a good time in vet school mm. um definitely enjoyed that journey quite a lot. Mm. Um, and I think in, in Columbus, what really saved me um, in my residency was actually starting to enjoy Columbus, the place a little bit more. So mm-hmm. finding some friends outside of vet, outside of the vet school, I joined a running club and they became a really close group of friends. And then I had a reason to be there as well. You know, I was like, Oh, mm. I can't wait for Thursday afternoon. I'm going to go to running club. You know, I'm, mm. I'm here. I'm actually enjoying life here a little bit more. Mm. Um, and that was, that was super helpful. But yeah, definitely residencies are hard. I, so I think, you know, you need to want to do it. And um, yeah, I know people that have um, started a residency and then decided not to finish that one and picked a different specialty or decided not to do a residency at all, or they've finished their residency and decided not to be a clinical specialist. Like all these journeys are fine. You know, there's, mm. but I think ultimately, um, yeah, want, wanting to do it pretty pretty strongly is kind of a prerequisite. Bronwyn, you said before that you were, that you fly around. Mm -hmm. Flying specialist surgeon. Right. What are the things that are, that are different between Australia, Canada and, um, and US or, you know, how do you adapt? Yeah, I think, I think adaptability is the key word. If you're going to be any sort of locum, um, you need to be, yeah, open-minded and adaptable. But I think um, there's not that. I was actually surprised when I returned to Australia after working in the States and Canada for a number of years as a specialist, um, how similar it actually is. So I think the biggest differences, there's not that much difference in the standard of care, I would say. I think Australian, you know, referral hospitals do a, do a really good job. Um, there tend to be, I think, more smaller specialty hospitals perhaps in Australia with fewer types of specialists in each compared to North America. Well, because it's more corporate, I think, in North America, there are more hospitals that have kind of more of a full complement of specialists, um, particularly within the internal medicine um, side of things. So they might have a neurologist and an oncologist and an internal medicine and a cardiologist, whereas in Australia, your internal medicine department might kind of um, yeah. encompass all of those things. Um, and then more people, I think overall have insurance, at least in Canada, more, more pet owners have pet insurance, which as a specialist, obviously makes a huge difference to the, the level of care that you can provide. Um, I think the, the coffee is definitely better in Australia, like really so, so much better. Like, you know, best part part about locoming in australia is <laughs> one of the best parts is yeah great great I, coffee I, shops i 100 percent agree with you like like the first thing i do would come back to australia is a coffee it's like oh, oh so absolutely i mean there is i'm a bit of a sleuth i can find pretty good coffee no matter where i go but it does take a you know fair bit of trial and error and a lot of research but um but no the other i think the other thing is um 
in Australia, there's a little bit more of a, especially in surgery, the kind of two tiered referral system. I think a lot more GPs or membership trained vets are doing more surgery. And in yeah. North America, at least in the cities that I've worked in, um, many more GPs will refer those same sorts of procedures, which for me as someone who loves soft tissue, you know, send, send me all your soft tissue things. That's great. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. So, so you're saying your, your general GP clinic in, in the States and in Canada will do, will do fewer of the, of the fun surgeries. Well, it depends what you define as fun surgeries, <laughs> but yeah, like, like it's not uncommon for me as a specialist to be referred to cystotomy in where I've worked in North America um, or, you know, gastrointestinal surgery, gallbladder mucosils, some of which can be, you know, some, some GI surgery, some gallbladder mucosils are, are hard, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they, they do require a certain level of post-op care and things. But I think, um, yeah, that's, that's one difference that I noticed. Um, and then in Ohio, I mean, people bring you food all the time. I mean, it's amazing. The cookies <laughs> are so good there. Like we had at Ohio State, like, yeah, we were kind of renowned as a surgery residence. We kind of trolled the hospital looking for who brought the cookies that day. And we'd kind of, ah, I love it. they're in GP today. And you know, go around and <laughs> find them. But no, we had, I had a client once, she dropped her pet off for some x-rays and me and the student had seen her and she came back with a whole cheesecake because she said we looked hungry. <laughs> thought it was great. <laughs> don't eat my dog. Please don't eat my dog. <laughs> But yeah, uh, this is this is this makes decision making very hard. I'm trying to put myself back in my 25 year old self going, OK, would I reconsider things? So from what you're talking about initially, uh, I, would, I thought, yeah, maybe I should have looked at America. And then you said about the coffee and I'm like, OK, no, good decision. America's out. I can, and, but now you're talking about cookies. And I'm like, oh, uh, maybe it is. With <laughs> I think I think the good news is that. Australian Australian coffee or Australian New Zealand you know, coffee culture is really taking off now in, um, you know, the US and Canada. It's okay. becoming like okay. a real boutique thing. So if okay. you Google, you look at like the website and the decor yeah. and the way they do their flat whites, you can kind of work out where the good ones are. Okay, so, cool. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay, so it is possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was, I was, like, was like five years ago, the first time we went to the States and went through and I was like, this black stuff poured out. And it's like, they, they have this stuff all the time in movies. Got to try some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know if it was burnt. I didn't know if it was burnt. Yeah, right. <laughs> I thought it was like hot burnt. Like, so someone's trying to clean a dirty, like charcoal <laughs> pot and then, then use that as coffee. Because I just, like, I was just like, what is this stuff? <laughs> and it was, it's everywhere. Oh, would you like some more? Like, no, no, thank you. Oh, would you like some cream with that? Oh, okay, I'll try cream. Oh, it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, I think as a surgery resident, you couldn't be too picky about the coffee. Yeah. Um, you know, coffee was coffee. It was. Yeah. <laughs> it's always good. So, Brian, when you got me, you got me all excited about being a surgeon. Now, it's not, it's never been anything that I was particularly interested in. Um, but you make it sound really nice. But what are the downsides? What what? There's clearly a lot of very cool stuff about it, but there's got to be a downside. Yeah, well, so it's, it's a good question, and. Um, you know, I, I love being a surgeon and I, um, for me, it's worked out, you know, really well, but I think, um, there's some definite downsides that I think maybe you don't think about when you first think about being a surgeon. So one of the things I think to consider when you're, um, charting your journey through your vet career is, um, are you okay with being on call? And, uh, in the sense of being a surgeon, are you okay with forever being on call pretty much? I mean, it's maybe not forever. There's certain places where you don't need to be on call, but 
part of the job as a surgeon is some expectation usually that you'll be on call. And um, at first you think, oh, it's not so bad. You know, everyone's on call when they first start vet. But as you progress in your career, many other people, many other specialties or types of veterinarians can, can get out of it. Um, and if you're a lucky surgeon, you can get out of it. But I think understanding that that's going to be part of your job. Um, and then I think the other thing is that it's a very, um, it's a tough specialty because when you make a mistake, um, it's exposed to the world. You know, it's it really, it's, it's there for all of you and, and complications are just the worst and they happen to everybody and they can be really sort of soul destroying. And I think as a surgeon, you know, if you make a mistake, your, your mistake is going to walk up the hall of the hospital and everyone's going to stare at it. You know, <laughs> I think, you know, your complications are, are right out there for, for people to see and, mm. and you need to make those split second decisions sometimes um, on the spot. You don't always get a, um, it's not like internal medicine where if you choose the wrong diagnostic test, you can kind of just do the right one tomorrow. Um, and yeah. no one's the wiser. I, I totally see that. I, I actually, if I say I, I was never that drawn to surgery. I actually like doing surgery. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the process, but that was actually my big thing. I, um, I, I worry about, always we used to especially about this, about the case afterwards a lot. What you go over in your head, oh, did, did I do that right? Did I do that properly? And is it going to be okay? And I only fully relax a week after the surgery when everything seems to be going well. How, how do you deal with that? What's your mental armor against those soul destroying thought processes and, and worrying about your cases too much? Yeah, I've, I've definitely been guilty about worrying about my cases too much. I think it's, you know, just part of my, my personality. And I think if you're going to be a successful surgeon, you need to get that under control pretty early in your career. Um, and so I guess my, my tactics are to sort of try and do the absolute best that I can in the OR and feel comfortable when I'm closing that I've done everything that I can. And then if I'm sort of struggling to sleep at night because I'm worried about my patient, I try and think to myself, is there anything that I could do now that could make things better? And usually there's not. (laughs) So usually it means that, you know, you go in there the next morning and and nine times out of 10, the thing that you've been most worried about hasn't actually happened yet. So trying not to worry about the stuff that hasn't happened yet. Um, And then I found that when something does go wrong, when there is a complication, oftentimes dealing with the complication is not as bad as the angst and worry that led up to it because you know there's a complication i know how to deal with those things that's what i got trained for in my residency so if something does happen which you know fortunately doesn't happen that often but when it does it's like okay we have a plan this is what we're going to do and um you know most of the time they're not life and death complications most of the time they're frustrating and you know potentially expensive but not um yeah i I think it's just something that comes, it gets easier with time, but, but certainly I'm someone who, you know, initially, even as a specialist would worry a lot about, um, about my patients. It's good to know that the specialist, I suppose this, I was going to say, it's good to know that the specialists worry as well, but you did probably worry more because there's even more, you're not supposed to be the one who messes up. If I, as a GP vet, if I, if I make a mistake, go, oh, yeah, well, I'm not a, I'm not a surgeon. Uh, but for you, it's, it's almost harder. Um, what you said there reminds me of a it's supposed to be a Mark Twain quote that says, if, I've had a lot of worries in my life, most of which never happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's exactly that. You couldn't worry so much about it and then, and then you've wasted all that emotional energy worrying about something that, that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think, I think the hardest ones are when you've kind of had a moment in surgery where you think, oh, especially 
you know, some of the more challenging, you know, soft tissue cases where you're dissecting out a tumor and there's all kinds of important structures around and there's lots of things that are large and white and you know that you're not supposed to hit the really important one, but some of them have to be sacrificed. And then you're not going to know whether the thing that you cut was the important structure necessarily until the next day when the patient's either, you know, doing well or not. And I think, you know, most of the time the patient the next day gets up and walks around and it's all, you know, <laughs> it's all fine, but definitely it can cause yeah. some, some angst. Yeah. There's a, um, there's a, there's an exercise I've heard of before. What's the worst case scenario exercise mm-hmm. where we're tempted to, when, when trying to deal with these things mentally and emotionally, there's a temptation to go, look, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But then you can't convince yourself. Well, this is me at least. There's a voice in your head that says, yeah, but is it going to be fine? Is it really going to be fine? Because what if it's not? So sometimes it's actually good to, when you, I find if I'm stuck in those sort of negative thought processes to go, all right, let's look at what's going to happen if it's not fine. Let's picture that. Let's actually go through the worst case scenario. So let's say I go in there tomorrow and as exactly what you said, you go and you go, okay, it has gone wrong. I've done an enterectomy. It's the hist. It's got a septic peritonitis. So what am I going to do? I do. I have a plan. I know what I'm going to do. I, I, there's a follow-up. So then your mind can go, okay, cool. I'm going to stop worrying, worrying about it so much because I have a plan. What is going to happen? Uh, if it doesn't go right, now I can stop worrying about it. And it's probably going to be fine. But if it's not, then I have my next actions in place. I know exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. I definitely do that. I definitely think of the worst case scenario and most of the time there is a way to deal with that, even though it's, you know, frustrating or embarrassing or costly or all three. Um, but there's always a way, there's usually a way to, um, you know, to get around it. And yeah, I think all I can say is that it, it gets your attitude towards it gets easier with time. But I think the, the more you've been doing surgery, the harder the surgeries that you do. And so there's always going to be ones where it's like, Oh, I've actually never done this before. I've only done it once and I'm really quite nervous about it. I hope it goes okay. Um, and then you've got to rely on, you know, sort of trust yourself a little bit. Yeah. Did you find that, that your expectations and then also the expectations that you set to the, to the client changes as you, as you get better? Because when, you, when you're new to surgery or in medicine or anything like that, you, you might think, oh, look, there's a, when I do this, I, I have to fix it and the owner believes that I, I, I sort of guarantee the owner that we're going to fix it and there's not going to any, be, be any problems. So that then when there's a complication, it is a big stress because the expe- expectations were wrong. Uh, have you learned over time to go, you know, the expectation is not always a guaranteed fix and you communicate that well from the start so that everybody's expectations are within reason. So when things go wrong, nobody's that upset because you, anyhow, that was half expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... Um... I think I certainly like to have a long conversation with every client before I take their pet to surgery. And I think most surgeons are the same, you know, even if somebody else has already diagnosed the problem and you're just doing the surgery, it's always important to kind of have that conversation as the surgeon, because you're the one that's going to have to deal with things if they don't go as planned. So it's good to have had that conversation beforehand. And, you know, I, I do try and make it fairly positive. I talk about, you know, the likelihood is that this is all, you know, we're going to be able to fix your pet or improve your pet or, or whatever. But I think having some, some literature um, behind you and some numbers and an understanding of how, how these things work. So you can tell them, look, you know, the incidence of aspiration pneumonia after laryngeal paralysis surgery is around 15%. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so if your dog gets aspiration pneumonia, that might be life threatening. And that's something that we need to be okay with going into this. And then if the dog gets aspiration pneumonia, it's, 
it's, you know, really frustrating and maybe it's life-threatening, but, you know, you've had that conversation and so, you know, people are sort of hopefully if they've understood then, then at least you've kind of communicated that and they can make their own decision about whether they accept those risks or not. Um, yeah. So. Um, strange times that we're in. Yes. You, how, how has your day-to-day life, working life been affected through, through the whole COVID, COVID crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you said at the start that you, you know, envied my, my lifestyle. And I think uh, what I've discovered recently is that being a locum who travels on an airplane for their livelihood is kind of a tenuous occupation to have uh, during a pandemic. So, um, Jeez, yeah. <laughs> so I've had to do a lot of, a fair bit of rethinking recently. And I think the, I'm, I'm trying to learn to embrace uncertainty. Like I think we all are. And, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why I'm looking more into, you know, how can I make an impact more through education and online learning and how can I, you know, get skills out there that people are going to be able to use, um, you know, in the community in surgery. And then also thinking, you know, in, in the short to medium term, international locomy is just not a thing right now. You know, it's not something that's feasible with these two-week quarantine periods. And so, yeah, it'll be an interesting few months. And I, I guess I'm excited to see what happens. I can't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen yet, but um, yeah, maybe, maybe some changes coming soon. Well, there certainly are changes coming. <laughs> I was going to ask you what, what uh, changes for you or changes for everybody. Uh, there's certainly a lot of changes for everybody. What, what are you most excited about? What, what are you thinking will come out of this for, for Run Run that, ex- that really excites you? Um, I think it'll be a, a chance to finally look more closely at this, the online and, and telemedicine and um, online learning side of things. I mean, I've um, met and we come into contact with so many people during this pandemic that I never would have had a chance to come into contact with. And some of that's through social media and even you guys, like I never would have reached out to Gerardo and, or any of that had it not been for the pandemic. Um, and I think one thing about surgery is that it's not a, a specialty that lends itself well to remote work. Uh, <laughs> Are the key downside of surgery, but I think there's been some pretty ingenious people out there who are who are starting to create. You know, how can we actually use the technology that we have, at least to teach surgery or to help people with surgery? Um, you know, if we're not treating the physical patients, but we can still use our expertise. Um, you know, to do that. So, kind of branching out in my career into a little bit of that as well as clinical surgery, and I think. Um, yeah, I'm fortunate to still have some work here close to home, so I'm not. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, not unemployed. Not not unemployed, but still, um, yeah, still looking at, at options for sure. The the um, Gerardo said earlier about your your charity work and the stuff you're doing not in specialist centres. Tell us more about that. Uh, so I haven't I haven't done a lot of of charity work. I would like to do more. I was scheduled to do some more this year, but obviously. COVID has put a little bit of a stop to that. But mm. I've done, um, I've worked with two different overseas charities who run pretty similarly. There's one called World Vets, um, which runs out of Central and South America. Mm-hmm. And they do a few different things. They kind of have community population control programs and they have training centers where they help to train local vets in how to do space and muters because um, they don't get a lot of surgery training, I think, sometimes. And they also have programs where they take, um, they allow veterinary students from North America to come for a a two week rotation 
and the veterinary students do the spay and neuter under the direction of instructors. And so the students learn, you know, really good spay and neuter skills over the week. The pets get neutered or spayed for free. Um, and the tuition that the students pay for the program kind of helps to fund the program. Yeah. So I volunteered for a, a couple of those programs as an instructor, um, which I thought was great because I love teaching. So I'd, I'd, you know, I like surgery too, but in terms of spay and neuter, like I'd much rather teach spay and neuter than, than be the one doing the spay and neuter because I feel like it's way more valuable to, um, you know, like I can make a bigger impact by teaching a bunch of people how to do it than I can. There's a limit. It's like scalability like you were talking about before. There's a limit yeah. to how much you can physically do yourself. And so there's a vet called Dr. Steve Krasinski. I may have mispronounced his last name who works for World Vet Central America. He's kind of the veterinary officer. Um, and so he, he lives down there and does a lot of great work with, um, you know, surgical education for, for vet students and things. So that's been great. And then the other kind of cool trip that I had a chance to go on um, was up to the Northwest Territories of Canada so the University of Calgary um, sends a group of veterinary students in fourth year and some uh, faculty up to communities, um, really, really remote communities up in the Northwest Territories. And these communities are accessible only by plane in the summer because the ground up there is very marshy and swampy. But in the wintertime, they're accessible by road because everything freezes and so they create these ice roads. So you drive you know, across frozen lakes and across sort of frozen marshes and you're able to access by road. And so the the team puts together a vet clinic in these trucks and we drive them from Yellowknife or up from Norman Wells, sorry, up into, you know, the far north. And that was wow. very cool. Um, so, so you're so going up in the, in the, in the, in the winter when it's everything's mm, frozen? Yeah, in February. Community work still, yeah? Yeah, so, so we end up setting up vet clinics in school classrooms, which is... Oh, wow which is pretty crazy. So we had, you know, grade five and then the, the students come in and watch. So you've got like grade five class and they've got to stand behind a particular line of tape on the side of the room. They're all like, wow, this is so cool. So <laughs> it's pretty neat for the, for the students, the school students, as well as the vet students who are up there kind of learning Spain. So I was a, I helped out as an instructor with that too. So that was kind of, again, just like a really neat experience. Like you have to be quite That's resourceful. Cool. You have to deal with, you know, problems with your generator or your truck breaking down yeah. in minus 40 or not having any lights or <laughs> all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. Um, that sounds incredible. I love that. It was, it was very cool. Like really, really fun. Like if you ever have the chance to visit the far, far North, you know, the Arctic, essentially, I, well, I was just below the Arctic circle, but mm. essentially, <laughs> essentially the Arctic, I'd never experienced anything like it. It was really neat. Oh, Jared, where are we going? Lombok sounds better, mate. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, I heard that you guys go to, or at least you, Hubert, go to Indonesia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of I, a similar thing. A similar thing. Um, the, the, there's a big program, or there's a few programs that run in Bali. Um, Lombok, on the other hand, which is just next door to Bali, has a bad stray dog problem that the government really does want to address. They, it, it, it actually negatively influences some of the, um, some of the tourism. So I'm, I was trying to, there are some people who work there, but there's no big programs really. Uh, there's some. There's a couple of expats who've set up some spay clinics and try to fund it privately. But I, I was, I, I, I am in the process, or I was in the process of getting involved in that. But same thing, COVID sort of put the brakes on. I'm, I'm, I mm -hmm. actually just we this week I started thinking again about 
you know, do I start trying to dig again? There's a few few limitations with them that I'm trying to overcome for for being able to do vet work there legally as a non-Indonesian resident. Mm. I haven't quite found a solution for that yet. Few, I think I have, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure. The um, bureaucracy there is clear as mud. Uh, it's very hard to get to the actual facts <laughs> of anything, what's legal and what's not legal. But I'm sitting here listening to you going, oh, it's surgical instructor who likes to travel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna yeah. to I mean, yeah, keep, yeah. Me in, keep me in mind for sure. 100%. Can we just dive a bit deeper now the volunteering? You, you said, why did you actually do it? Why did you actually choose to do volunteering? So I think... Um, as veterinarians who have trained in a, you know, any sort of developed country where we've got veterinary medicine that is at a high enough level to rival human medicine, we're, you know, we're so lucky to get trained in all these, these skills. And, you know, there's many parts of the world where veterinarians don't really get much surgical training particularly, but, um, you know, don't have the opportunity to train the way that we have. And in those parts of the world also, you know, may rely a lot more heavily on animals for their livelihood and may have a lot more animals that they interact with on a daily basis. And so two things, one of them is, you know, training other veterinarians on how to better manage both animal health and welfare, but also it feeds back into public health. So you get to really have more of an impact in you know, one health or, or um, global health. Mm-hmm. And two, just kind of giving back some of the skills that, you know, we've been fortunate enough to learn in, Australia or the US, um, giving them back to communities where, you know, in some some of the places that I've worked, the human hospital didn't even have an x-ray machine. So, you know, the fact that we have digital x-ray available to our veterinary patients yeah. is is really, you know, a huge privilege. So it gives yeah. you a bit of perspective, doesn't it? On, on, on Pers- what, yeah, I think perspective is the perspective is the key word. Yeah. And I think it also teaches you to be you know, adaptable and resourceful and, and make the best with what you've got, but also make decisions based on what's feasible within the constructs of what's there. So, you know, certain surgeries we just can't do in those locations. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not um, not feasible for animal welfare reasons. We just don't have the capability. And so making those decisions and being like, no, sorry, we can't. But we can do, you know, these other things that might really help. So Yeah. So when you say you're teaching people the surgical skills, are these local vets or vet students as well and then do you get american or international people come along on the program and practice their surgical skills there yeah so the two programs that i volunteered in the worldwide vet service in thailand and the world vets in nicaragua Mm -hmm. it was a combination so the program that specific program that i was teaching was students from either australia or the us who were coming in to learn surgery but then the people working in the clinic, mm-hmm. you know, day to day, the regular veterinary staff were local veterinarians and local veterinary nurses. And so those people were doing almost like an internship learning in the clinic from us and learning along with the vet students. And then I think there's other times of year when they don't have international students come in where the instructors from the charity um, teach the local veterinarians kind of the same thing. But because I don't speak Spanish or Thai, I'm not as useful to the local veterinarians, obviously, although I can help in some way. I'm, they have, yeah, you would, the, the, the language um, yeah. becomes a challenge. But definitely there were some veterinarians, particularly in the Thailand program, who um, did speak, you know, good English and they were really keen to learn how we did things differently and they were really interested in surgery and so we did like a limb amputation one day and a couple of them scrubbed in and we talked through the whole thing and 
you know, it's great. They were like, oh, this is so useful. You know, we, we often need to amputate dog limbs. And so now we actually know how to do it in a way that's, you know, safe within the construct of what we've got. So let's wrap up with a couple of standard questions, Bronwyn. Um, are you a podcast listener? Uh, I am. Yeah. So I, I travel a lot and I drive a lot for work uh, and I drive a lot for fun too. Lots of long road trips to the mountains. And so, um, my favorite podcast is hidden brain from NPR, uh, has a marvelous host whose name is Shankar Vedantam, whose voice I could just listen to all day. And, um, it's a really interesting podcast based on psychology. So kind of teaching us why we think the way we think and going through different human behavior, um, you know, interesting quirks of human behavior. And then they get a, a psychologist on there and talk about, you know, why we do what we do. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and I also like the other one from NPR that I enjoy is Planet Money because I, like many veterinarians, have zero background in economics, finance, business. And so it just explains things in a really interesting, interesting way. But I think, um, yeah, if you haven't already checked out Hidden Brain, I'd, I'd give it a good listen. All right. And then our, our last question that we always wrap up with. You're at a conference or let's say you're doing a digital event where you are talking to all of the veterinary new graduates in the world. And you have just a couple of minutes to give them one message. The one thing that Bronwyn wants to tell the vets of the world. I had so many messages. I was, <laughs> this was a, this was a tricky question. Um, but I think ultimately um, believe in yourself, you know, don't let what you do be defined by other people's expectations, what other people tell you that you should do or that you feel like you should do. And, you know, find out what it is that makes you have a great day, you know, in Batman and try and do more of that. So, and even if that means switching up what you're doing to something completely different after a couple of years or, or changing, don't be afraid to do something a little bit, um, you know, off the beaten path or, or not do it, things the traditional way. Um, I've certainly taken, some people would say I've done everything the hard way. So, <laughs> but, um, but I think it's, you know, everyone has their own kind of journey. Um, and the other thing that I feel pretty strongly about is, you know, creating a life for yourself outside of work that, gives you a reason to leave the clinic every day. So, mm. you know, don't forget to find, you know, meaning and joy in things outside of work. Um, and I, you guys have done a lot of talking about work-life balance and whether that's the right term for it or not. But I think, you know, finding some things in your life that, that you have passion for, that you love to do, that, you know, when it's 6 p.m. and you're trying to get your medical records done, if you have something going on that you want to get out of that clinic, you're going to be so much more efficient. You're going to have so much better time at work if you've got other stuff going on that, you know, that balances it out. Yeah. Well, you certainly seem to have, seem to have smashed it. You seem to have figured it out to a very large degree. Uh, I love, I love looking through your, your Instagram feed and photos of running in the mountains and hiking, but then also, also having that exceptional career. The I've, I've talked about it before where I feel like, it can be easy to lead too too far towards the the balance part and actually neglect the work part a little bit in because i'm so focused on having all the fun and doing all the great things and i love how you've managed to to really run become exceptional at your work and then also have this um, really it's at least from the outside really incredible looking balanced part of your life as well i think it, i think it's an ongoing struggle for everybody so i'm i'm certainly trying and yeah but I don't think anyone has it quite. Uh, no, has no. The, That's a, it's a journey. Isn't it's it? a journey for sure. Yeah. yeah. Bronwyn, that was incredible. I um, you've completely changed my perception on what it means to be a surgeon and what it means to be in America. Uh, a little part of me wishes I could go back in time and, and live your life. 
That's incredible. Thank you so much for the time spending with us. And I think you've inspired quite a few people to, to think a little bit differently about where they're going with their, with their careers. No, thank you too. And like that, that little golden nugget for me, which was the choosing to be a resident, you know, that I, that was, I'm not, I, I'm never going to do it, but I thought that was actually beautiful. Um, yeah. So thank you so much as well. Great. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been really fun. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Remember to go check out the show notes at thevetvault.com for a summary of some of the best bits from the episodes and our guests' favorite resources. If you found value in this and you can think of a friend or a colleague who could benefit from the content, then please do them a favor and share this episode with them.